Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company tonight, my panel, Dominique Samuels, writer and broadcaster, Dr. Phil K- Philip Kisley, uh, the cultural historian and journalist, Joe Phillips. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now. It's not just about us here. It's about you at home and your thoughts. What's on your mind tonight? And what are your thoughts on the stories that we'll be discussing? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. Don't forget, of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube page. We're live on there. You might be watching us now. Good evening if you are. We're across uh, radio, DAB+. We're on podcasts. We're all over social media. We are everywhere, I tell you. Lots of you have been getting in touch already um, tonight. Gary says, Michelle, I've got a simple question. Do women have a penis? No, Gary, they do not. And probably my one-year-old son uh, knows the answer to that question. Phil says, Michelle, if you're so bored with Partygate, why are you giving it airtime tonight? The public are not interested. Phil, I've got to tell you, I am not interested at all in the story. But as my mum always says, life's not all about me. I'm slowly learning that. Uh, And lots of you are indeed interested in this story. Joe. Uh, Phillips on my panel, for example, is desperate to talk about it, so I hear. So, because it's not just all about me and what I think, I know that some of you want to talk about it tonight, so we shall be doing, and I am going to do my best to be interested in it. That is a promise. Anyway, let's get into our top story tonight, shall we? Russia's Deputy Defence Minister Alexander Foreman says that Russia will radically reduce military activity around Kiev. Foreman says that Moscow will cut back activity to increase mutual trust for future negotiations to sign and agree a peace deal with Ukraine. Talks are resumed today in Istanbul between delegates following the bizarre reports that two Ukrainian delegates uh, and Roman Abramovich were poisoned apparently earlier this month. Uh, I'll come to you first, Joe Phillips. You know, we all want there to be peace in Ukraine as quick as possible. Uh, Do you think that we're on the road to that now? There's certainly encouraging sounds coming out of Turkey. Um, I mean, you know, there are several questions to be asked, the the most important being, would we trust Putin anyway? Um, And I think Zelensky, he's got to be mindful that peace at any cost might cost him dearly. Um, And if he does something that is seen as a sellout to Russia, then, you know, he could quite easily be deposed by his own people. In other words, Putin gets what he wants. He gets regime change. He gets a, you know, a, a complicit, um, docile Ukrainian leader instead of um, Vladimir Zelensky. But you know, they, the Ukrainians. In fact, the last time I was here, Michelle, we talked about. We heard um, President Zelensky say about the doors of NATO being closed or, or not open, in that rather sort of frustrated and bitter speech that he made that day. He's also apparently been talking about neutrality that would be a guarantee, providing there is something better than the Budapest Agreement, which frankly wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Yeah, you're on about when he got rid of his nuclear weapon. Well, not he, but when Ukraine got rid of their nuclear weapons. And and we and Russia and and, um, America agreed to protect them. Well, clearly Russia hasn't. So I think, you know, there's room for 
encouragement, perhaps, but it's early days. And until the fighting stops, we can't really see any progress. Well, joining me now to discuss this latest development is Mark Harmon, journalist, author and director of Oxford Crisis Research Institute. Good evening to you. Just discussing here the progress that's apparently been made uh, in the peace talks. Does this sound like good news to you? Do you think we can trust, trust Russia to deliver what they're suggesting, which is dramatically reduce military activity in various places, including Kiev? Well, I think we should be very careful about trusting anything until we have clear ways of verifying it on the ground. Because partly what may be happening is the Russians have decided they can't capture the Ukrainian capital here. So they're moving troops around southeast of the country where they've had better success so far in the fighting in order to reinforce those forces around Mariupol from terribly badly battered city in the south and over towards the city of Odessa. So I think it would be uh, a bit naive to think that this is necessarily a sign that there's going to be peace. Of course, it would be very welcome if, for some miracle, uh, the Russians and the Ukrainians could agree on what they think uh, would be the basis of a genuine long-term peace. But this war has only been on for a month, but it has produced great bitterness because of loss of life, of physical destruction, and the sense of perfidy that many Ukrainians feel they're confronted by on the part of Russia, and the sense that President Putin whatever he might say, and he hasn't actually said anything terribly conciliatory yet, is in fact bent upon achieving his goals. And so there may be a pause, the ceasefire may be just one of those episodes, which gives one side the opportunity to regroup its forces and start again, hoping, in this case, the Russians, hoping to be more successful. And Mark, I read with interest um, an article column that you wrote in the Daily Mail yesterday, uh, focusing on the alleged poisoning of Abramovich. You were asking, uh, is it all it seems? Is it in your mind? Well, this is one of the great problems about the problem of trust. Everything's very murky. So there is one possibility that the Russian secret services, who have a very long track record of being involved in poisoning people they don't like, may have for some reason decided they wanted to disrupt these peaceful earlier this month and they may dislike Abramovich because they see him perhaps as somebody who's going to act as a peace mediator. They don't necessarily want these hardliners, as it were, still are betting on victory. Then there's a possibility, a lesser possibility, it has to be said, but it may be some people in the Ukrainian side said, we don't want to see peace now because we're winning and we can perhaps actually go the whole way and recover all the territory that we've lost recover places like the Crimea, which they had to give up in 2014. But the, obviously the main finger of suspicion points to the Russian government, if it was poisoning. Of course, it could just be a freak food poisoning incident. Um, and this, as I say, the very fact that there are plausible theories uh, pointing the finger in different directions shows how difficult it is for anybody really to be able to say, we can knock heads together, we can find a basis for a settlement on which people will trust the absence of trust both sides. And it was tensed by the Ukrainians that if they were to sign a ceasefire, they could be attacked again when the Russians felt better able and had learned from their mistake how to do it again in a more ruthless, effective way. That's, I think, one of the things that's going to haunt peace. Mark Hammond, thanks for your time there. Dominique, uh, I've got to say, Russia uh, today denied um, the so-called poisoning of Roman Abramovich and the other two people. You know, this is one of the challenges with this uh, war in Ukraine, knowing what to believe, who to believe. It's a minefield. Yeah, it really is. I think this whole story has actually been really bizarre because on the one hand, Abramovich was sanctioned 
um, by our country. And then on the other hand, he seems to be sort of the victim in all this because he's obviously been allegedly a victim of poisoning. So I don't know which side to believe. I, I don't necessarily think that Ukraine would have anything to do with this. I don't think that's really realistic. Um, but just on the point of the peace talks being a sign of good progress, I think they're going to have to be. I think especially people within the West are going to have to accept that, you know, Ukraine will inevitably have to make concessions, whether that be in terms of neutrality um, or the area um, within the Donbass. I did actually say that months ago. I said that you know, Ukraine should probably be neutral and that um, the areas in the Donbass in the eastern parts of Ukraine should probably be allowed to be controlled by Russia. And that wasn't very popular. But at, at this point, whether or not Russia is winning at the moment, it does have the military capabilities to be able to wait this out a lot longer than Ukraine probably can. Mm -hmm. And what that means is more Ukrainian people dying more chaos within our countries when we're dealing with a global economic crisis. And I think that's too much of a price to pay for both us and Ukrainian people. Dr. Philip uh, Kisley, you're agreeing, I can hear. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, it seems to me, I mean, it might be food poisoning. You know, it might well be food poisoning, we don't know. But it seems to me that uh, this is a chance for Russia to regroup. And peace talks where nobody's allowed to drink any water or nobody's allowed to have any food because they might die is uh, they don't kind of instill you with much confidence, really. Um, so I, I tend to think this is going to go on and on. I don't think the peace talks are going to achieve much. They might achieve something in the very short term, but I think it's going to turn into a, a long, dreadful, brutal war of attrition um, and, and, and nobody's going to win. Yeah, and I mean, it's all well and good trying to, everyone fighting for Ukraine, but what kind of state? Uh, will Ukraine be in the longer this goes on? That's the question I'm wondering. Um, right. Lots of you guys have been getting in touch, by the way. David says uh, he couldn't hear the guest properly there. Well, I've got to say, David, I, I couldn't hear him properly either, but I just thought that I needed to clean out my ears. Uh, so if anyone was struggling to hear that interview, I do apologise for that. Um, Russia, Peter says, why are you asking if we can trust Russia? We are not in talks with Russia. Uh, and if the people uh, negotiating with Russia don't trust them, my question is, what is the point of negotiations? Uh, yes, Peter, I hear what you're saying there, but the question here is, you know, who, who do you believe? We all sit here trying to understand what is exactly going on, and you could literally pick up the same story, and you can have about six different versions of it at the moment. Uh, this is a war that is absolutely being played out uh, in the guise of, for example, social media, which puts a lot of interesting spin on things, that is for sure. Unless, of course, you're in Russia, where you can't see anything other than what they, you're being fed. Yeah, but um, don't forget as well, by the way, Joe, Ukraine, Zelensky actually closed down a lot of media outlets. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's not just Russia that's getting restricted information at the moment. Um, that's why I'm saying who on earth knows uh, what and who to believe at this point in time. Right, let's talk about uh, what I would like to call uh, the most boring story in the land, but I know <laughs> for lots of you it is not, so I will take it much more seriously. Right, 25 fines. Uh, sorry, 20 fines apparently will be issued as part of the police inquiry into Downing Street parties that broke COVID rules. The Met Police will not be saying who is fined or which events the fixed penalty notice relates to. Got to say, that makes me groan because I think if the police are not going to say, then that means, unfortunately, we're going to be subjected to God only knows how long uh, of the media desperately trying to find out who these have gone to. 
Uh, it's been reported, of course, that 12 gatherings have been investigated in Downing Street. Labour, of course, say that Prime Minister Boris Johnson should resign if he is fined. Got to say, uh, I haven't hidden my thoughts um, on this story, but Dominique, I'll start with you. Do you agree with me? Should, it, should we be riveted by now as to what's gone on in these parties? Have we got better things to worry about or, or is this actually quite important? Yeah, I do think we have better things to be discussing. And I think even in terms of the political landscape at the moment, um, you know, when MPs were signing letters of no confidence in Boris Johnson, a few of them have actually um, been removed now. There were fears and, you know, calls for him to resign, that he would eventually be voted out, that he'd go. And I just didn't believe it. And I still don't believe it because we've got the crisis in Ukraine. We've got the cost of living crisis to deal with. If it emerges that, you know, he is held personally responsible for what went on in Downing Street in terms of fines, I think it will be damaging in the long term. But I don't think we would see the prime minister resign right now at all. It just wouldn't happen. So in that case, I just think the media should... Stop, I mean, screaming about it because a lot of people are bored. It might affect the Conservatives locally on the doorstep. And I think uh, to people that I've spoken to, it has. A lot of people are very unhappy with the Prime Minister, but there are bigger issues to focus on in my yeah. life. I'm bored. I bet you're not, though. No, I'm not. I think it's really important. And I think, of course, Ukraine and the war in Ukraine and people dying and you know, everything that's going on is hugely important and we should all focus on that and that is a global issue. But this comes down to leadership and it comes down to integrity and it is perfectly clear that what we do know now, even though we don't know and probably never will know, the people who have had a fixed penalty notice or are getting one in the next 24 hours, although Downing Street have said that if Boris Johnson gets one, they will make that public and it's possible that Simon Case, the leading uh, senior civil servant, um, who apparently organised the Bring a Bottle Party, would also be made public. So it seems to me that we therefore have a complete contradiction. Well, in December last year, Boris Johnson said there we abided by the rules throughout. Well, clearly they didn't because these events took place. The police have investigated. The police have found fit to fine 20 people. Boris Johnson is the boss. He is the leader. This happened on his watch. I can't imagine this happening when Theresa May was in Downing Street or John Major or even David Cameron. It's that cavalier attitude. And isn't there an irony, as Polly was just saying in the news, that on the day that marks the first heart painted on the, that wall, the first fines are going to be sent out. And on the day that we've seen... The, the Queen and the royal family go to Westminster Abbey to remember Prince Philip. We all remember her on her own, abiding by the rules the day after people had been boozing it up in Downing I, Street. I think that says to me, though, that the rules were unnecessary in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, well, you I might, feel you, as though... You might say that, Dominique, but the rules were put in force and people were being hounded yeah. for going for a walk, for meeting people. I, I, I agree. You know, either you make the rules and you stick to them, or you don't make the yeah, rules, right. but you, you can't don't. have it both ways. But, but so just hold hold that thought. I'm desperate to hear what you think, Philip. But uh, Darren McCaffrey, we've got him joining me uh, live from outside Westminster with the latest on this. Darren, what's happening? Yeah, very good evening, uh, Michelle. Well, actually, what's happening tonight is the Prime Minister is hosting uh, essentially all of the Conservative backbenchers uh, here, part of his efforts to try and rebuild uh, trust with many of them. It's been in the diary uh, for a while, so it is somewhat of a coincidence it's happening on the day uh, that these fixed penalty notices have been issued. In fact, actually, some Conservative MPs are privately saying they are not planning to attend 
uh, this kind of dinner and drinks with Boris Johnson tonight because they think it is ill-advised and ill-timed. But in the end, listening to your contributors there, you're right, 20 fixed notices. Now, we don't know if that's 20 individuals or some individuals having received uh, potentially a fine twice because we believe there were way more than just one party here in Downing Street and indeed elsewhere uh, within uh, government buildings. But in the end, this is all still pretty tricky territory for the Prime Minister. Uh, again, when your contributors write and point out that uh, clearly we don't think the Prime Minister is among the initial 20 today. Downing Street have said they will make it public if he does receive a fine. But also the Met have made it clear that this is only the start of what potentially could be a lot more fines uh, to come. We think that those that have been issued today are to junior members of the civil service. Their names may never be revealed. Uh, but in the weeks to come, we could see uh, more fines issued. And even though the Prime Minister has got some headroom, uh, clearly with what has happened in Ukraine, uh, many feel politics has moved on. Uh, and even those that disagree with the Prime Minister inside the Conservative Party think now is not the time. Uh, that is different from saying that the Prime Minister is entirely out of the woods on all of this, because as I say, we will have uh, more police fixed penalty notices almost certainly in the weeks to come. And also the publication of that Sue Gray report. And I think for many MPs, irrespective of what now happens, and certainly for the opposition, they feel this quite strongly, is that we now know, far from what the Prime Minister said to Parliament in December, that there were no parties and all the guidance was followed, in the end, actually, Michelle, the police have revealed that there were uh, rules that were broken inside number 10. Parties were held uh, against those rules, and that is why uh, many MPs feel pretty aggrieved, and much of the public too, is this, though, as difficult as it was for the Prime Minister during that melee back in January when this was dominating the news? It is not. And for some of his supporters, they would argue, given what is happening in Ukraine, given the cost of living crisis, that some people should get a perspective on all of this. Uh, for others, again, as one of your contributors uh, put it earlier, uh, this is about leadership and it's about integrity of the office. Who's going to win out? Uh, will it be up to Conservative MPs to decide in the weeks to come? Sarah McCaffrey, thanks for that. Philip, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Joe, really. Uh, it is about leadership. But I also think this is a really good opportunity to change our mindset. So rather than looking backwards and looking inwards, we need to look forward and we need to look out. We've, the, Europe is a, a theatre for war. We've got a fuel crisis. We, we're looking at, the, you know, the, the, the biggest recession since the 1970s. And we've, we, we're looking at, actually, the toughest time possibly since the war. Yeah. And because we've had it so easy for so... I've, I sound like old here, don't I? But because we've had it so easy for so long, we're not prepared to deal with that, with that kind of challenge. And, and it takes a different mindset. We, we should be looking to the horizon and to the challenges and, and the fear that's on the horizon rather than looking to the past. But then we need a leader easy. to take us we into do, those. Absolutely. And we need a leader that you can trust. We, we do, but what we don't want to do now is, is, is change that leader just at the moment because actually I'm, you know, I'm like you, I, I, I think Boris Johnson really hasn't done a good job. No, but just at the it. moment, <laughs> but just at the moment and, in, in, in Europe and, and in this theatre of war, he seems to be handling himself quite no, well. No, he doesn't. He's parading. He's doing his Churchillian tribute act. He is parading. He's I doing agree. nothing. Yeah, I, I mean, he went cap in hand to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I understand. You know, yeah, we sell no, arms I, I, to I understand what to you're saying. I understand oil. what you're saying, but I don't, I don't see anyone who can take his place. And I yeah, certainly wouldn't a, see... I certainly don't see the, the, the opposition... Ben Wallace, Jeremy place. Hunt, 
No. No, I, not Jeremy Hunt, no, certainly not. Please, no. no. And the thing is, I think maybe this is sort of a bit dark, but I kind of like the fact that he's in a weakish position uh, because that means that maybe more policy um, concessions can actually be wrestled out from him. I mean, there has been quite yeah. the concession on, say, fracking, for example, because a lot of people were calling for us to use, you know, our own natural gas. Um, there could be more concessions with regards to the green agenda and rising taxes, because at the moment we're just not really in a position to be rising um, taxes when ordinary people are struggling to put food on the table. So it could be, in a way, sort of positive. We might be able to wrestle a few more concessions out of him. That's what politics you know, is. It's a bargaining table, yeah. isn't I it? Think I think in the works. end, it won't be Partygate that does for him. It'll be the cost of living. And that we'll, we'll know about that, as Darren said, in May, in the local elections. And I think that's, you know, that will be one month on from the, the increase in energy. Um, and and as, as Philip says, I mean, you know, lots of people have grown up never seeing inflation above 2 or 3%. And the impact that this is going to have on people's mortgages, people's rent... People's well, income. Boris Johnson's not responsible though, for much of this. Let's be absolutely clear. This is a global uh, crisis. The cost of living, the cost of energy, etc. This is happening where you the world over. Money, Michelle, you can choose where you spend money, and we spent thirty-seven or thirty-nine billion pounds on, on test and trace, which was a complete disaster. Um, we have spent. I mean, I know we're going to talk about Brexit later, but you know, we got national insurance going up to pay for the NHS. Well, we were apparently going to get £350 million a week after we left Europe. That didn't happen, did it? I think not even with that, though. This government has also been complicit from another angle here with global lockdowns. And I think what a lot of people are forgetting is part of the reason why we're in this position economically in the first place is because the global economy effectively shut down. And I've obviously been a very loud opponent against lockdowns. But a lot of people who have called for harsher, longer lockdowns, restrictions on the economy, people have lost their jobs, not being able to operate properly or pay their bills. The government has had to spend extortionate amounts in order to keep people at home. Those same people are now shocked that we're having to deal with rising taxes and rising yeah. costs. And that's just the reality. You're absolutely right. And be careful what you wish for, because there was an awful lot of people that wanted the government to do more and more and more, uh, pay more money, help mm. more people. But guess what? All this help, it's not free, you know. We do have to pay it back, as we're slowly starting to learn now. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll be reading out some more of your thoughts. And I want to look about what's been going on with the royal family today. Of course, we've had the memorial service for the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, what do you think the future holds for the royal family? We'll have that and more after the break. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Just a quick reminder, in case you've just joined us as to who my panellists tonight, we've got Dominique Samuels, a writer and broadcaster, Dr Philip Kissley, who's the cultural historian, and journalist Joe Phillips. Let's talk the royals, shall we? The Queen, of course, was joined by members of her family today at Westminster Abbey for a memorial service in honour of her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, who died last year, aged 99. It was the Queen's first appearance at a major event this year and she was joined by Prince Andrew, appearing for the first time since the settlement of a US civil sexual assault case. There were 1,800 people in attendance and this, of course, contrasts with just the 30 that were present at the Duke's funeral due to COVID rules that were enforced at the time. Uh, Philip, I'll start with you on this one. Um, 
every aspect pretty much of the event today has mm. been scrutinised. So within an inch of its life, who sat there? What's the Queen doing coming in with Andrew? Should she be there with Andrew? Shouldn't she be there with Andrew? And on and on and on it goes. Uh, your thoughts on all of this and particularly just around the concept of the future of the royals. Um, I tell you, Michael's emailed in saying, Michelle, I have every respect for the Queen and her commitment to her role. However, and I think it's an interesting question, if you were starting afresh today and building a brand new country, say with a few million other people, would you say that one of those families there should basically declare themselves the monarchy? Uh, Prime Minister is elected. Is there any need uh, for a president as a head of state? Who should be the head of state? What is the future for the royals? It's a good question, but we've been asking ourselves that question for decades and generations, haven't we? I think the future for the royals, um, they'll survive, I would guess, but it doesn't look that good for them, mainly because Charles, I don't think, is that popular, but also the younger royals are embracing identity politics and, and taking on responsibility for global slavery. You know, Prince William is saying sorry for global slavery. And, and it seems to be that they are alienating the people who love them mm. and would love them anyway. And they're trying to kind of tease into the, you know, in, 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 try and appeal to wokery <laughs> and people who would o ordinarily hate them. And what they're, what they're doing is just appealing to nobody. Um, you, you, you know, uh, with uh, Prince Andrew as well, and, and not to mention Harry and Meghan Markle, it really doesn't look good for them. It, it reminds me of the Diana years of, of, of the 80s and, and how they just seem to be completely and utterly out of touch. And I think now they're trying to be in touch, and actually that's the problem. Mm, trying to be in touch with too many people. Uh, Dominique? Yeah, I, I have to agree, and I hate speaking badly about the royal family because I think the Queen is absolutely amazing. I think yeah. most people agree with that. However, at the moment, I agree. Charles isn't exactly very popular. I myself have been quite uncomfortable with comments um, he made at COP26 where he said, you know, we need to go on a military-like footing to tackle climate change. And around that debate it has been things about, you know, changing the way we drive, changing the way we heat our homes, changing how much meat we eat, for example. You know, and is Prince Charles really gonna go on that military-like footing like the rest of us? I really do doubt it. And I think that rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. With Prince Andrew, you know, him settling a dispute for sexual assault and he was best friends with a paedophile, mm. that doesn't look good. And for him to be there, it seems as though he's just being accepted back into the fold with no real repercussions for his own behavior. Um, and then with, you know, Prince William and Kate, I think that they can potentially be the saving grace of the royal family because people genuinely do love them. I think the way they were treated in the Caribbean um, was unfortunate. Although I don't think Prince William should have personally apologized, I think that it was mature and statesmanlike for him to address the concerns that were clearly there. Um, however, at the same time, I agree with you, if they do want to remain relevant with the people that love them dearly and will, you know, go all out for the monarchy, I think they need to stick to the roots, stop the, you know, the, the woke talking points about climate change and things like that. And I just think they should stick to what they know and just keep out of politics, really. But will they though, Joe? Will they keep out of stuff? Well, Prince Charles has always been a very keen environmentalist. Yeah. And actually, you know, to be fair, he's put into practice in a lot of um, his own farming and his own lifestyle and his architectural interests, everything that he's been talking about long before it was woke yeah. um, to talk about the environment. 
I think it's difficult when you're, what is he, 74, 75, and you haven't really had a clear role and you've got a mum who's still going on, and yet she has made it clear recently that she expects him to succeed her and she expects Camilla to be Queen Consort. And I think it's only at that time that Prince Charles will probably sit down with William and say, OK, how are we going to play this? I mean, it's quite clear that the tour in the Caribbean was based on the formula that last existed, you know, 40 years ago. Put them in the back of a Land Rover, um, let them meet grateful natives and all that sort of appalling attitude, which isn't to deflect from the fact that actually, you know, lots of people are really pleased to see them and they do do some good. But the whole, there needs to be a rethink. It's like, a, you know, they're referred to as the firm. They refer to themselves as the firm. They need to be rebranded slightly if they're going to exist. And as for Harry, I think he will regret for his dying days to not be there today. Yeah, Susan has just emailed in actually um, saying the royals can't do right for wrong. Prince Andrew has every right to honour his father and support his mother. He is guilty only of bad taste in a friendship. I've got to say, Susan, uh, I agree with a lot. <laughs> See, but, but I actually, when you say you won't go about that far, what do you mean? Because I found it today really bizarre, the amount of focus on people saying, oh, look, Prince Andrew was there and he's been linked to Epstein. And, Why would you pay 12 million quid to a woman that you claim you've never met? But that today is irrelevant. This is no, and I, this no, is I agree with you. For today, father. To stand for, for today, yeah, but I, I mean, I'm just talking about the, the optics of it and the optics aren't good. And to say but that... But what do you mean he, the optics aren't good? Because to say that he just had a, a poor choice in Friends, I think that's really quite a, a shocking statement to make. I mean, the guy was a sex trafficker and Prince Andrew um, still went around this sex trafficker even after... But specifically, been found out to have been a sex trafficker. But so I want to pull you up on really your point. What that. do you mean that the optics don't look good? This is a, a man uh, supporting his mom to remember did he have his to dad. Be, did he have to be the one there though, going in with her? Why not? I don't think he should have. I think he should well, have been there. Well, I think there. it was probably the to... Queen's wish, I would imagine. Yeah. I, don't and, think, and... I don't think that was the right thing to do. Well, it might not have been the right thing to do, but I think, I think that was the Queen's wish. I think there's something else here as well. We're talking about ethics, aren't we? And we're talking about, you know, him, him being uh, friends with a, a paedophile and a sex trafficker. There's also the stupidity of his, of his interview, the, the, oh, the yeah. BBC yeah. interview. And I think people find that really you know that sticks in people's throat as well it's not it's not just about the yeah. it's not just about the, the 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 big important issues there's something quite embarrassing about about how he handled himself and how they actually how his how his advisors as well handled that situation so i <laughs> I looked at the image of the Queen today, and, and I love the Queen, and I'm and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a royalist, but I do, I do really fear for the future. Do you see? Yeah. If I was the Queen, I wouldn't give a monkey's what people thought about my son. If I wanted my son to support me at my side, he would be there. End of story. Well, that's, that's what I've just said. I think that's what's happened. But I think, I think that's, that's what's exactly happened. what she did do. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me know what you think to that, because there has been an awful lot of scrutiny about the whole kind of prince. Uh, Andrew thing and should he have been the one in the car with the no. Queen? Uh, Dominique says no, I say absolutely if that's, that's who she wants to support her. You have whoever you want to support you. Uh, never mind what anyone else says. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I want to talk to you.
to you about the fact that did you know that today is five years to the day since uh, we invoked Article 50 and began the process of leaving the European Union? Have a look at how it's going so far. And I also want to touch upon the absolute bizarre, stupid, if you ask me, uh, concept that some trusts in the NHS England are now going to be asking men whether or not they might be pregnant before they have a scan, an ultrasound. I mean, honestly, the world has gone mad. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Quick reminder as to my panel tonight, Dominique Samuels, the writer and broadcaster, Dr. Philip Kisley, the uh, cultural historian and journalist, Joe Phillips. Gotta say, we've rumbled our conversation on across the break uh, <laughs> about the whole Prince Andrew thing. Uh, lots of you getting in touch uh, on this. I find it absolutely bizarre that anyone would even suggest for a nanosecond that Prince Andrew should not be at the memorial of his father and they're supporting his mum. But it really has divided opinion. Steve has emailed in saying, Jubes, the Queen literally stuck two fingers up to the public by having Andrew besides her. I mean, come on, Steve. This is uh, her son, and this service is to support his father, to remember his father. It's also a public servant. I mean, Dominique, still, I mean, I just, I can't She has get... a responsibility. It might sound harsh, but she has a responsibility to the public as well as her son, and her son is a disgrace. Well, there you go. What do you think? Margaret says that she's with me. She agrees with me 100% regarding Prince Andrew supporting his mum today, that I'm going to park that topic there, because that's what I like. Someone agreeing with me 100%. Margaret, you've got good taste, I can tell you. <laughs> right, so let's move on. Men who are undergoing scans at some NHS trusts in England have been asked if they're pregnant. Yes, you did indeed hear me. Right, men. Uh, the, world, the word female has been replaced by individuals in the law regarding medical procedures. And a selection of trusts are now asking all patients under 60 if they are pregnant before undergoing procedures which could harm an unborn child. Dominique Samuels. I mean, what this is, is it's just virtue signalling for the sake of inclusivity. But I think this idea of inclusivity really is about excluding women because it's women that are disproportionately affected by these decisions. And I mean, you only need to, to look at the statistics. The prevalence rate globally of being a transgender woman is about one in 30,000 and one in 100,000 for a transgender man. The vast majority of transgender people are male to female, not the other way around. So any gender neutral policy will disproportionately affect women. Therefore, we have every right to be concerned about this. And it's simple, men, cannot bear children. It's females, rightly said in there, females of childbearing age. That shouldn't be offensive. It's just what the reality is. And it's crazy that this is being, you, our taxpayers' money is being used to fund ridiculous things like this that don't actually really mean anything. It's one of those um, instances, isn't it, where it's the tyranny of the minority. Mm. Um, and, and this, if you, if you think about this, this, this whole gender thing, it, it goes back much further back than we think it does. It goes right back to postmodernism in the 1960s. And then it, it crystallises round about 1990. There's a book by Judith Butler. And this is literally your forte, isn't this it? This is you my are forte. A cultural historian. Uh, there's, a, there's a book by Judith Butler called Gender Trouble, which, which posits that, that, that gender and gender identity is just a social construct. And it's completely unreadable. Um, and, it's, and it's very playful, I suppose. But... What happens is, once this stuff that happens 
on in the academy and happens on campus goes into real life, there are actual repercussions. And if you think about what's going on in, in hospitals here. Actually, the real story is women's sport, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the big thing. But if you think about what's going on in hospitals here, and you think about things like statistics, especially crime statistics, where all of a sudden women are raping women people, are what's going on there? Yeah, so th that's, that's, that's a really important thing, and, it, and it's the fallout of, of, of this is massive. One of the things that's really striking to me is, is how this has got so far because a lot of it is just so incredibly ludicrous and that's not to say I'm, I'm transphobic or anything like that I'm really not I come from a, a, a performance and drama background and I know lots of trans people and they're all lovely but when it comes to hospitals and when it comes to telling people that they're ill men that they're ill I think about my father who died of cancer and you 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 think you know people if someone was going to ask him excuse me sir are you pregnant just as he's dying he's an old man who's dying I mean it's it's grotesque Joe. Mm. well I agree with both Philip and Dominique and I think you know women's voices are being drowned out yeah. by this minority and I'm sure you're going to be bombarded. Um, and the reason it's taken off is because of social media. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it is a minority. But it means that ordinary middle-aged women like me feel uncomfortable about saying, do you know what, actually, unless you've had somebody grope you on a tube train or you've been frightened walking home at night in the dark or you've had somebody come up to you and put their arms around you that you don't want at a party or all of those things that we do on a daily basis, if you've never had period pains, if you've never had a baby, never had a miscarriage, never had the menopause, all of those things that are health, mentally, um, safety, you know, are you going to really have trans people in a woman's refuge? Mm. And, you know, there's a horrible mixture here, which, which trans people quite rightly say, oh, you're doing what people used to do, some people used to do, about homosexuality and, and linking homosexuality with paedophilia, which of course is utter nonsense and totally offensive. Mm -hmm. But that isn't what people are saying. But what is I find so desperately uncomfortable is this notion that you can self-identify and say, okay, I'm today I'm a woman. Mm. But you could actually literally do that. So you can self, uh, the, you know, there's a story, wasn't there, about someone who self-identifies as a woman one day a week. Yeah. Um, which is fine. And that's okay. And if you want to dress as a woman yeah. and you want to live as a woman, it's, it's completely that's fine. fine. The, the problem is when when rights claims clash. Yes, and, exactly. And, and women only spaces are invaded, yeah. and women feel unsafe. Yeah, and it and always seems to be, and it always seems to yeah. be women who pay the price. That's right. And it's a, it's not about you know whether you're going to be brutally attacked. It's about being uncomfortable. And I'm sure, you know, um, Dominique, you, Michelle, and me, and the women working out there, we all know exactly what that means. And I think Philip's right. When you get to sport, I mean, what chance have you got competing? Just, no, it's blatantly unfair. And, and so, so to do this, and I think exactly what Dominique said, at, Dominique said at the very beginning, I mean, this is trying to be inclusive, but it's gone mad. Because surely, and I, one would hope that this is a silly story that's absolutely, totally out of proportion and that most sensible radiographers or health professionals wouldn't even dream of asking such a silly question. Well, Peter's got in touch saying, Michelle, I'm a 73-year-old male 
and I've not been asked recently if I'm pregnant, I feel discriminated against. Well, Peter, I'm going to make you feel even worse now, love, because the reason you won't be asked is because you're too old. That's, <laughs> oh. not, that's not coming from me. The cutoff is 60, Peter. So they're only going to ask individuals uh, whether or not they might be pregnant if they are under or 60 or under. However, though, Peter, in today's lunatic world, I suspect there's nothing um, stopping you from self-identifying as being, say, 21. Where does it end? Do you get my point? You know, to me, it's very simple. You are what you are. Um, and we should all respect each other for who we are and what we are, but we shouldn't necessarily be desperately trying to rip up every single fabric of society uh, to try and reflect the thoughts uh, that some people have. Let me know your thoughts, though, at gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at uh, gbnews. I've got to say, some of the, um, some of the um, messages, you are making me chuckle. Uh, Barry says, well, I'm a 74-year-old man. Um, I don't feel like I've had a period, he says, for 60-odd years. <laughs> I haven't done a recent uh, pregnancy test, so how would I know the answer to this question? Ah, Barry, and so the lunacy <laughs> continues. Uh, now, did you know that today marks the five-year anniversary since uh, basically the UK invoked Article 50 to start the process of leaving the European Union? Uh, Brexit was a huge divide, wasn't it, in society? I've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, yeah, it still is. Dominique's right there. Um, only got a couple of minutes left, so I'll, I'll put it brief. Joe, Brexit, has it been a success of yet? Of course it hasn't. But mainly because we were sold a pack of lives. And so the people who voted for Brexit were voting for something that couldn't be delivered. We've got Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, appealing to people in the sun for some ideas on bureaucracy that he wants to cut. I mean, why didn't they have a plan? I've already mentioned the NHS funds that were going to come pouring in once we stop spending money to Europe. Um, we've seen what's happened to the economy. The Office of Public... Uh, Budget Responsibility put out their report, which does disentangle uh, the economy from COVID um, and from the global economy. And it is absolutely devastating reading. Our production is down, our GDP is down and the outlook is great. Right, so that's a no from Joe. Uh, <laughs> Philip? Um, well, it's, it's not being given a chance. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a yes from me. I was a Brexiteer and... Um, and uh, but I think there's got to be a will there. So uh, there's got to be a will to make it work. And, yeah. and I don't think there is at the moment. So the idea that we want the keys um, to our own front door is a perfectly legitimate idea because if we don't have the keys to our own front door, then we, we can't really have democracy. But we've got to be able to lock that front door as well. And if we, if we had a... a, a head of um, border control who didn't believe in borders. Uh, so there needs to be a much more, and I'm not anti-immigration, I'm from an immig immigrant background myself. My, my father was Hungarian, came here uh, in 1959. Uh, but I, I do believe we should be having much tighter control on immigration. That could come, that could have come from Brexit, but there's no will to, to impose it. Dominique, briefly? Um, I think, I don't think it's had a chance personally. And I think there is sort of a chasm between people that are more on, you know, Nigel Farage's idea of Brexit and on the Conservative Party's idea of Brexit, I don't think both of those sides really reconcile. Even, for example, as mentioned, um, with immigration, we now have more control over our, over our borders and it seems that we've not really taken advantage of that. I mean, people might disagree with me on this. I don't believe in, you know, taking in hundreds of thousands of people from Hong Kong. I didn't really agree with it with Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, 
I do think that we do have to give it a chance. And like you said, I completely agree, we need leaders with an appetite for it. Well, there you go. And I suspect, I can tell you now, that this Brexit debate will rumble on and on and on. But you know what? Let's be honest about this. Look at what has gone on in the world since we voted for Brexit. Nobody could have foresaw some of the things that's happened. We've had a global pandemic. We've then had a cost of living crisis. We're then lurching into the cusp of a potential war in Europe. I mean, goodness gracious me, uh, Brexit is a long-term strategy. So let's yeah. give it a bit of a long-term, shall we? See how it goes. And for goodness sake, everyone, stop bashing absolutely everything. That's what I say. Have a good night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.